Hello, beautiful listeners. It's your host, Tenby Locke. Welcome to Lifted, a podcast that pulls back the curtain on creativity, resilience, and the extraordinary moments when everything changes. Welcome to a bonus episode of Lifted. We have had a magnificent first season. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with the creative brain trust, the women, the dynamic creators behind the scenes from scratch. And along the way, I started to think more deeply about creativity in general, creativity in my own life, and how creativity can be used to find our way back to ourselves. And I thought it might be nice to have a conversation with someone who is an expert in this area so that she can unpack it a little bit. She can demystify this thing called creativity and inspire each and every one of us, but particularly caregivers, a population that is near and dear to my heart, of how creativity can be used to lift our lives in times of strife, challenge, trauma, it being a kind of a North Star to find our way back to ourselves. It's a deeper dive into creativity. And I speak with Eve Rodsky. I think you're going to love it. Hello, Eve Rodsky. Welcome to Lifted. Tembi, thank you so much for having me. We got to see each other recently and you lift me up. You're one of those people. And I just want to say thank you for your work. And I'm really excited for this conversation today to see where our work intersects. Oh, I do believe our work intersects. I feel like our paths cross, right, in the serendipitous, big, universal way through Reese's Book Club. And I felt like once we connected, I was like, I'm not letting you go. <laughs> like, I Same. need to, Same. I have so much to learn from you. And I'm also, you know, equally inspired by you. So I'm excited for this conversation. This season has been a lot about talking with the women who created and were part of the team who lifted from scratch, from the page to the screen, and they're creative professionals, right? They do this for a living. They've got to find their way in and out of that for them personally, and then share it in a professional context. But your book, what I love about it, it is for any person at any age at any stage of life, who is attempting, and this is the language I would use, to find their way back to themselves. And you've given this beautiful guide and this way to do it. And you've named that space, which I love the name, the unicorn space. What is the unicorn space? Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, space is such an important term, how we take up space. I think about a lot and especially for women or for more marginalized populations that haven't always been able to take up space. So trying to find a term, like what is a unicorn space? Why is it not a bubble bath? Why is it not a drink with a friend? Those things are very important too. Adult friendships, self-care, we're not minimizing anything, especially if you're a caregiver out there or have had burnout or trauma, which most of us have had a version of that from the COVID pandemic. But a unicorn space is something different, Tembi, and that's why it took a whole book to write about it. I want to first acknowledge that why it's different is because the one thing I want to tell your listeners is that I wish I could tell them a walk around the block could cure their burnout. I wish I could tell you when you were suffering through grief that the way forward was just, you know, 
a once a week book club with your friends, which is a, a great thing, of course, to do as well. But really, the antidote to burnout, the antidote to grief, the antidote to these hard things you wrestle with is really being consistently interested in your own life. That's it. Eve, girl, okay, we're going there. Repeat that. And we'll unpack it because it's hard to get there. But really, the only antidote I can tell you to these hard things we're talking about today, the burnout we're talking about, is the consistent you out there, the listener, being consistently interested in your own life, making that space for that consistent interest in your own life. And that is hard because we're told that that's irrelevant. We're told that it's frivolous. In a capitalist patriarchy, if it doesn't make money, we're told it's a waste of time to invest this time in ourselves and to make that space. But like a unicorn, it is mythical. It is magical. It will change your life when you spot it, when you are in it. But to get there, to get there for women especially, is much more complicated, Tembi, than I thought. And it was an ancillary finding from Fair Play. My first book is a book about why men don't do housework and childcare and how to get them there. But the ancillary finding was that even women were whispering to me, Tembi, okay, fair play is getting me more time, but Eve, should I do fair play? Because I wouldn't know what to do with that time if I had it. And that was scaring me. That felt alarming. And so we really explore those themes of what you would do with that newfound time, why it is that society has stripped your identity from you, why it is that it, for women, it makes sense for society to just define us by our roles as parents, partners, professionals. By professionals, I mean anybody who works for pay or who's in a caregiving role unpaid. That is where society wants to keep us. And so this conversation is really about how do you break out of that? I'm letting all of that wash over me because I love it. And I'm also aware that you are coming to the table, ringing the bell to announce to the world that when you cut off a whole part of your life and a whole part of who you are, that there's a cost to that. Yes. Personal cost, a family cost. And I would say also a societal cost. There can be, and I can tell you as someone who wrestled with ways to express my grief, unexpressed grief, and I mean that in its full totality of grief, right? There is a grief of not being able to follow your heart's path. There's a grief to that. You can't express it. There's a corollary health crisis that can happen around all of that. This getting into the unicorn space is about both making space and prioritizing your inner life and self. Yes. And the net of that is that you can be healthier, better, fuller, richer, more present, more alive, more awake, more generous, more giving, more loving, more present. All those. Yes. And all more. Yes. All the mores. All the mores. <laughs> and so I love that what starts off on the surface is seeing like, hey, go, you know, find time to crochet or knit no, or like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. It's about something so much deeper and richer and fuller. And that's what I loved about reading the book and the way that you tee up this conversation in a beautiful way. And you can't help but induct the reader at each page and in each chapter, you start feeling more and more like I have to do this. I have to do this for myself. Right. That's the feeling when you read the book is like you understand the urgency of the unicorn space. And by the end of it, I was like, I don't want to just enter the unicorn space. I want to ride that unicorn. Yes. Like I want to ride the unicorn. Yeah. Yes. Well, what's so beautiful about what you're saying is understanding the urgency, Tembi, because 
again, especially for your listeners where this may feel self-indulgent, especially if there's caregiving responsibilities. I think the other thing that was important, what you said besides urgency was you alluded to health. If you don't think it's urgent already from saying, okay, I deserve that permission to be interested in my own life, then I want to unpack it a little bit further before we get into how you can find it. I want to convince you that you need it because what was really interesting about writing a book about creativity, Tembi, after a book about household labor and what it meant for women to be one crisis away from their full mental and physical burnout from holding all the unpaid labor in society. That's really my activism. But why did a book about creativity come next? Well, a book about creativity came next because I start to see the mental health implications, and this was even before the pandemic, of what happens when women are just defined by their roles. I saw it in my own life when I was losing the support of Seth within the invisible work. I tell a story in Fair Play about him sending me a text that says, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries and how, you know, this realization that I had become the fulfiller of his smoothie needs and everything else for him, the she-fault parent, the she-fault caregiver was really, really painful. Losing him, but also around the same time of having my second son, losing my workplace because they had taken away my direct reports from me on maternity leave and also told me if I wanted to come back, I'd have to be pumping breast milk in basically a broom closet. So wait, Eve, who is Seth in your life? Seth? is my husband. And the reason why I bring his name up often is because I wrote a whole first book about him, Tembi. Unicorn Space is a sequel to Fair Play. And Fair Play is a book about my relationship with him and what it took to really live fairly with him in a time and a space where things were really unfair. And yes, we're still married. A lot of people ask me that a lot. (laughs) Yes, I'm still married to Seth. And he knows how to Instacart blueberries. He does. He makes his own smoothies now. There was a lot of abandonment, I think, that caregivers feel, especially mothers in midlife, because, you know, maybe our partners are abandoning us if we have them. A lot of women are having children without partners, like my mother. She was physically abandoned by my father when he left, when she was pregnant with my younger brother. There's the physical and emotional abandonment from our workplaces. A lot of times when we are having children or having caregiving responsibilities, we feel like we have to hide it. But then on top of it, We're told in America that we're supposed to find our own social safety net because we have no universal childcare. We don't have paid leave in this country, as you know, you allude to beautifully and from scratch about just the burdens, financial burdens, the emotional burdens of caretaking, the isolating burdens in this country of what it feels like to be a caretaker. When you don't have a social safety net, then we start looking around us. And I remember everybody saying, well, just wait till your kids are in school. Then you'll have time for all this stuff you want to get back to, your identity will come back. Well, I did that. And I remember going, and I don't tell the story in the book, but I want to tell you the story that I remember going to the toddler transition program for Zach, where I had already been emotionally abandoned by Seth. My workplace had physically and emotionally abandoned me so that I'd quit to start my own law firm. And finally, I get to this place where everybody says, you know, my life is going to begin again. My first kid's in school. I'm going to meet this community that's going to be like this unicorn community that's going to, you know, take over for me and watch my kids and help me carpool. And I get there and this preschool teacher has us all go around in a circle. And it's mostly women and a couple of gay fathers. She says, you know, look around. These are the people that are, you're going to know forever that are going to support you. And I was so eager to look around. And as I did, What I realized is I I looked down at the name tag, Tembi, that I was wearing, and the name tag said, Zach's mom. 
And so what I remember thinking is, wait a second, wait a second. These are the people that are going to know me better than anyone's ever known me. They don't even know my fucking name. And that's when I realized I had to save myself, you know, that not alone. That's the myth of Americans, right? We have to do everything alone. I don't mean that. I mean, in a connected community that will talk about what unicorn space really is. But I meant that I had to start investigating why this myth and narrative that we've told ourselves that everything's going to be great once we have a ring or a partner or a baby, that we're going to be somehow fulfilled and that we should not complain was a complete and total lie. Last thing I want to say before we go into the bigger conversation is what that made me unpack for this book was understanding what mental health was. Because my mental health was on the verge. I didn't have from scratch. I didn't have Netflix back then. This is 2011. We don't, I don't even think iPads had come out or maybe they had just come out. We didn't have social media the same way. All I knew is I was alone. The caregiving community I had doesn't know my name. My partner thinks I'm a, the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. My workplace has abandoned me. And now I'm in a place where my mental health is hanging on by a string. So when I finally went out to explore Unicorn Space, the second book, the question I asked so many mental health providers was, what is the true definition of mental health? And what I want to tell your listeners is that the true definition of mental health is not how to be happy. And I ask you to retire that now. Don't tell your kids you want them to be happy. What you want to tell your kids, this is my son Ben says, I know, mom, you want me to have the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time and the ability and strength to weather it. Unicorn space, what we're talking about today, is the ability and strength to weather it. It becomes your umbrella because it will not stop raining and nor should it, but we need umbrellas. Absolutely, we have to have the umbrellas. The language I put around it is like, life is this uneven, rocky road (laughs) that is meandering and going in all kinds of directions with known and unknown disasters at any corner. And so along the way, you have to throw a dinner party. That's right. That's it. That's it. I love it. That's the way I talk about it. But again, for me, a dinner party is a unicorn space. It's hosting. Yes, of course. And connecting. My sister and I, I don't know that you've met my sister Attica, but we've come to say that life is going to keep lifing. Yeah. It never stops being life. Yes, that's right. And so therefore finding and finding often the word to find means like people think of finding us, oh, they just aren't to it. That's one way to find something. But the other way to find something is to set out with intentionality, to look for it, to seek it, to ask for help, to find the guideposts so that you can meet up with the desired thing you want in time and space at some point. You've got to go out and find it. You've got to find ways while life is doing the thing that life will do to lift and elevate. And I came to that knowledge in a very real way, which I write about in the book, of course, it's in the series, through my husband's illness. And I wasn't a parent when he was diagnosed, but then I became a parent while he was diagnosed. And the urgency to hear my own thoughts, find my own voice was so great while I was caring for both an infant and then toddler and then preschooler, while I was going to chemo treatments and things, I was like, where am I and who am I? I was seeking the unicorn space before knowing that that's what I was doing, right? I definitely today want to be able to talk about ways to do that one. Also for me, the community as a caregiver was a big part of who and what allowed me to access my unicorn space. So I want to talk about the role of community because you talk about that rugged individualism. 
for a long time, I thought the only way I could get there was like, I had to figure out all the things and then I could go to the space. Well, guess what? When I tried that, I was exhausted. By the time I figured out all the things, I when I went to my unicorn space, it was called a nap. Right. Sleep. <laughs> that was what, that's yes, all it was. Sleep. So I had to learn to have people help me systematize the chaos that was my life in order for me to have carved out specific times that I could count on week to week to be able to access the space. And that's the thing you talk about in the book. So I want to get in into the how of it, because I think some of the listeners will be very much into the how. Have you distinguish the difference between a hobby per se and the unicorn space and why also passion is overrated. So let's set the table for this conversation to say, how is the unicorn space, Eve, not like a hobby? Okay, here's the importance of what a unicorn space is. A unicorn space is a space where you are committing to being consistently interested in your own life. It is not three things. One, it's not adult friendships, which is very important. It's another piece of what makes people happy, uh, what makes people fulfilled. And they come along the way with unicorn space, but it's not a drink with a friend. Unicorn space also is not self-care. It is not a one-off spin class. That is important. That is the bottom of your Maslow's hierarchy. You need those, you know, those steps and some movement in your life. It's not a hobby and it's not a passion. Now I'll tell you why those words can be so off-putting. A passion sounds like it's something you've had your whole life. A passion sounds like something that is intrinsic to who you are, who your value system is. That is great if that is your unicorn space. But for a lot of people, it is a very intimidating word, the word passion, follow your passion. It feels with a lot of privilege for my interviews. People didn't love that word. The other word that was really fraught with stress and anxiety was the word hobby because it's often used with women and it's often used as a way to diminish and demean unpaid labor or work that has been traditionally women's work. And it's also a hobby. When I asked people, the number one thing that came associated with a hobby was infrequency. This is thousands of interviews now. And as I said to you, a unicorn space is an activity, a task that can make you come alive, but it's also consistent. And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about the how, about how you would know. And there's two clues, and we'll talk about how we can get there. But the two clues to know you are in a unicorn space is one, it's often a pursuit that at the end of it, you say, oh, I can't believe I just did that. Not, I can't believe I just did that. Like if you're like betting on FanDuel or doing hedonistic well-being, like eating 17 banana breads a day during the pandemic. That's, I can't believe I just did that with regret. I can't believe I just did that with surprise is one clue. And the second clue is that every unicorn space, every person I've interviewed, every mental health provider, everybody in the seven disciplines that are encapsulated in unicorn space, the book, um, know that when you're in this type of space, you have curiosity, connection, and completion. Not always at the same time. They are all mixed into this beautiful witch's brew that is a unicorn space. So it's, I can't believe I just did that in a beautiful, inspired, and dare I say, lifted way. Lifted like, way. Oh my gosh, lifted. I can't believe I just did that. It feels good. You feel lifted. You feel expanded. You feel the space, right? And then you talk about the three C's as you refer to them. Curiosity, right? Connection. And completion, which is a version of a commitment. Yes. 
feel all of those things together, you're in that unicorn space. And by the way, that might not be something that's called a passion. <laughs> but that's exactly right. It's not a passion. I'll tell you why. Like if this woman last year during the pandemic, she had read Unicorn Space. What I recommend from the book, I say, you pick a C that where you feel like you're lacking. If you're feeling like you are the person of all ideas, but it's really hard to get one of them off the ground, that would be a completion issue. If you're someone who's feeling isolated and lonely, maybe you're a caregiver, it's a connection issue. If it's something where you feel like, wow, I don't even know what I'm interested in anymore, that's a curiosity issue. So this woman says that she's reading the book and what her thing was, was the second C. It was 100% connection for her. She was feeling sort of isolated and far rock away as a caregiver. And this idea of connection just really stuck to her. And so again, no passion for ocean swimming. Definitely no passion for jumping in the ocean when it's 32 degrees out. But what she did was she found a Facebook group that was a polar bear group that was taking some January swims into the Atlantic Ocean. She signed up for the polar bear group. One of her acquaintances she saw in there, she was like, okay, at least these are, you know, she knows she's not going to just be with all athletes and some middle-aged women, she said. And she said, while she started with connection, this polar bear group, it became curiosity. I wonder what it would feel like to jump into the Atlantic Ocean. And she completed it. But it also took her to have to vanquish guilt to say, it's okay that I don't take my daughter to her, you know, Saturday morning, whatever class she was going to take to, that I can ask support systems, I can ask my partner. It took her to believe she could be unavailable on a weekend and that would be okay for her family. There were a lot of things that I talk about that you have to push through to get to those three C's, especially that guilt and shame that will rear its ugly head. What I love about her story when she related to me on Instagram, on DM, was that it didn't start with a passion at all. It started with that second C, this idea that I'm not feeling connected and I want to be connected and it doesn't have to be people I know for the rest of my whole life or the people I'll ever know for the rest of my life. I just need that connection now. And that is something I would say, definitely, I know for the caregivers who are listening right now, connection is a big thing. Caregiving is so isolating because you are really inside of the interior of another human being's most intimate and deep physical, emotional, and spiritual care, often on call all day long. And there's simply no space for you and you are still working or doing all the things. And so finding connection away from, as I say, like the connection with medicine or the industrial medical complex or whatever's happening, that finding other connections are key. And that's often a desire, I think, that caregivers have when they are seeking something. And then it's like, okay, well, how do I do it? But before they even get to the how, they have to pass through something you alluded to in your response now, which is the guilt and the shame. So I really want to spend a moment talking about that. And I'll share some personal stuff around for me, which was like, I was like, who am I (laughs) with my healthy self, right? Not going through chemo, Who am I to put myself above the most primary needs of this other person? Who's my beloved, my spouse, my lover, father, my child? Like if I don't help him, then everything falls apart. So I can't even get to me. That was the thinking. That was the thinking morning, sort of noon and night. And sometimes I was actually relieved 
when he got into the chemo chair and they hooked him up because I thought, oh, for the next hour and a half, the nurses are watching him and I can go offline mentally, right? And then I didn't know what to do. So I would just go sit at Starbucks and like have caffeine, right? Or I'd wander through bookstores, which was a kind of an ish of a unicorn space. Cause actually in those spaces, I was curious about books. I would just allow myself the space to wander. And for me, that's how my curiosity often first manifests is I wander and I find myself going, I'm coming back to this place again and again, hmm, there's something here going on. But I had to move through the guilt and I had to move through the shame. We write this in the scene in the series where Amy goes to take Lino to the first chemo treatment and Amy leaves. And that is a adaptation of a real moment because I did leave the first day Sato had his chemo treatment and I actually went shoe shopping. (laughs) That'll tell you the arc of like where I had to go in my journey of being a caregiver. I was so cool. I just didn't know what was happening. And I checked out. I completely checked out with his blessing initially, but I've checked out. But ultimately what I can see now many years later is a part of what I was attempting to do was to make space for like my experience inside of his experience. It showed up as shopping. Yeah. But I understand that. Later, it would show up as writing. Later, it would show up as gardening. Later, it would show up in ways that were regenerative to yes, me. Yes, yes. That filled me, that gave me more energy to show up in my life and to be a, actually a better caregiver, to be a better, more present wife because I wasn't denying who I was but it took me a long time to get there. And the people who helped me with the guilt and the shame were people outside of me in the community who observed and said, you need this. You may not know you need this, but you need this space. And I don't want you to feel shame about it. And we'll help you get there. I think as we talk about the unicorn space today, as it relates to caregivers, people who are listening, who are in the community, who have caregivers in their community, in their circle of friends, listen to what we are saying and be the people who come to them and say, you need this. Let me help you figure out how to get it. And and when they resist and they will resist, they will say, I can't, no, I can't, or they don't, I don't want to bother. or I don't know. Keep showing up to them, reminding them eventually they're going to get there. And you can use some of the things we've talked about here today, which is for their mental health, they need it. They'll be better caregiver to the patient if they are giving themselves an opportunity to enter the unicorn space. I think that's right. And I think what's so hard about you wanting to pause on the guilt and shame was that my editor wanted me to go straight to the program, right? How do you find curiosity? How do you find connection? What does completion look like? Why is that different than perfection? But I had to push back and say, look, this book will not be honoring the data of especially women, but men too, and all genders, but really, especially women who are not claiming this time or thinking, okay, right, it could be just a one-off shopping trip, or even they do something fun for themselves, God forbid, a girl's weekend, you know, once a year. But this idea of being consistently interested in your own life is really a difficult one because you have to really understand that it's harder when it's consistent. You have to deal with the guilt and shame early. Right. Yeah. Like in the beginning, because again, a one-off girl's trip, you can sort of justify it. But if you're saying like every single week, instead of one chemo session, you're going to be 
at your art class, or you're going to be teaching your Kundalini yoga, or I'm just thinking of the thousands of examples that we have, or this one woman who started off rowing, and then she just apparently broke the world record of rowing from California to Hawaii. So congrats to you, Adrian, for being an amazing unicorn space disciple. None of us are hopefully need to break world records, but I think the point is that you start leveling up. You start wanting to do more. Oh, I wrote in my journal one hour today. I browsed Barnes and Noble for another hour. Actually, what would it feel like to write a poem? What would it feel like to write a book? Your curiosity gets more interesting and deeper for yourself as you spend more time. But to do that, we really have to do two things. One, we have to sit with something that's really hard. We have to sit with saying to ourselves, I deserve a permission to be unavailable for my role as a caregiver, a parent, a partner, a professional. I deserve a permission to be unavailable. And I ask your listeners out there, like when I say that out loud, do you believe that statement for yourself? Eve, do you know what's so crazy? When you said that right now, and my husband's been gone for 10 years, but in this conversation has put me back in my caregiver body. I was like, I can't. Like literally the first impulse, oh, I can't. Yeah. So I know that's a strong thing. That's a strong thing. Because Tembi, Tembi, availability in your book, in your show, in this podcast, availability was part of your journey. And I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but for so many of the women I speak to, availability becomes part of their identity. What if, and that's what I mean, pick, close your eyes, picture the hospital calling you and you not picking up your phone. Picture a school calling today and not picking up your phone. It is not something women, I think, can even physically picture without getting a stress response. Or at least that's how, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Totally. I, I, I absolutely, completely. And so I would say, in those situations, once I made the commitment to myself, carve out consistent time for myself, I would put someone in my community on call in my place so that the phone call from the hospital didn't go unanswered. Correct. Correct. There's someone who is present who respond in the ways that I would. I've given them the institutional knowledge of what could happen. This might happen. Do this, do that. We've troubleshot. And I said, okay. And for the next hour or hour and a half, or dare I say three hours, I am unavailable. And I will say the first time I was actually really elated. I was excited. I was elated. It was all the new, right? It was like the honeymoon period. (laughs) Totally. The honeymoon period of unavailability. Exactly. Yes. And then toward the end of that time period, I knew I was going to have to transition back into my life and into the responsibility. And that was hard. And I felt sad, but I still had the lift of having the time where I was unavailable. But as I consistently did it, I noticed that the resistance, you don't have the resistance once you make peace with the resistance, you put it out. The resistance will continue to show up. So I then realized I had to be in commitment with myself to meet the resistance each time and to say to myself, no, I made this choice. And sometimes that's why I had to have accountability. So for me, it often looked like I had to sign up where I was in a community with other people, like a writing class where I had to like give response maybe to note on their work. They were counting on me to be in my unicorn space. And that then allowed me, so when the resistance would come up, I could say, I know, I know this is going to be hard. Maybe I'll be five minutes late, <laughs> you know, or something, but I'm not going to not go because that community is also counting on me. 
and in a wonderful way. I love that. Yes, that is it. That sharing with the world, Tembi, is the key factor for why a unicorn space, when you're occupying a unicorn space, is not just self-care. It's why it's not just the signing up for the spin class, even though that's some type of accountability. But the accountability you're talking about is an accountability that allows you to vanquish guilt and shame because it allows you to be accountable to sharing with the world. So I remember one woman, she was actually ironically a Nordstrom shoe shopper, you know, like a a shoe salesman. She talks about sort of her guilt of wanting to bake during the pandemic and how hard it was to still sort of show up at the store. And then she realized if she just reframes it, that she's also accountable, not just to her job, to the availability of her bosses or for, you know, being the superstar salesperson she was. But it was also this accountability to this other community because at that point, her unicorn space, now she's doing it for a full living and, you know, her cookie business sort of took off. But at the time, it was that she felt accountable to her neighbors, to her friends, to try these new recipes, to bring people joy by sharing those cookies with the world. And so what you're saying about availability when you said that even now to this day, right, we're still feeling the need to justify or to feel the stress response of saying I am unavailable and what that implication means. But one important thing to understand is that you can still go through a journey of feeling like it's hard to be unavailable because it is hard logistically. We just talked about that. But what I don't want it to be wrapped up in is the emotions of guilt and shame, which are very unhelpful in this particular unicorn space scenario. Because what guilt and shame will do, this one woman told me that it's a very interesting thing, for especially for women, that she's a single mother in New York, and she's in a rent-stabilized building that Juilliard students also are in, and she loves the piano. And so what she told me was that she had bought sheet music I think it was Disney music that she wanted to, you know, play for her daughter who was in daycare, some show tunes. And she decided to book the room from three to four once a week when her child was in daycare. What she said started happening was that it would start getting dark really early. She started to watch the sunset in this music room when she was playing piano for herself and her heart would pound and she got very distracted and she couldn't practice because she said her child doesn't like being in daycare in the dark. And so what she said is that she took the sheet music and she stopped. She she took herself off the list for the room and she stopped practicing. Now, why that makes me sad is because we have lots of emotions, anger, sadness, happiness, all the emotions we can talk about. But guilt and shame are emotions that for women, especially I noticed in my research were ones where your actions immediately change. That's what's so interesting. So yeah, so I am not in that chemo room you're in another community, but if you're not getting over the guilt and shame, even if you feel accountable to those other people, you will turn your car around. This woman will rip up her sheet music. And so that's what I want people to understand. It's okay to work through the journey of unavailability. What it's not okay to do is allow guilt and shame to change your behavior without really examining why it's doing that. That is so much wisdom. And again, I come back to the stakes around your internal salvation as a caregiver, the stakes are very high and they are no lower than the stakes of the person who's ill. And I know that's a hard thing to wrap your heart and mind around because we are told, and it's very obvious that the person who is ill and who who you're caring for needs immediate primary care. 
But the care that the caregiver needs is also very, very real. And so making space for that and not having that be undone by feelings of guilt and shame is something I really hope listeners take in and are willing to at least open their hearts to wrestle with the discomfort of it. You may not get over it today, but we just want to plant the seed that you can you can put that down. There is a way to put the guilt and shame down and go toward it because you're, I can say unequivocally that you will have more moments of lift. And from that, your blood pressure will lower, your sleep will improve, you will have more mental space to problem solve, your stress response will lower. And those are really good things because what I was on was a course where his health was precarious and I was running myself down. My health was going to be precarious as well. And that would not have been a good scenario. So just like there's a protocol and a medical protocol for his care, I had to come up with a protocol for my care. And I found over time that I can now name that as entering the unicorn space. <laughs> that was my protocol, <laughs> but I had to get there. You know, he had a physician and nurses and he had, you know, clinical trials to sort of like define what that protocol was. I had to kind of make mine up as I go along and I had to use my community to do that. But that's what we're encouraging listeners now to do. And if you are in the community and you know of someone who is, who is going through this, be the voice, be their, you know, clinical nurse who's <laughs> like, hey, you need this. It helped me when someone framed it to me that way. I was so deep in. When someone framed it for me as you need your own medical protocol. And it, that is as valuable for you to do the work to care for him. When it was framed to me in that way, then it became more of a non-negotiable. It wasn't just a thing I was doing because I needed, like, as you say, a hobby day or like a girl date with my girlfriends, all which were great. And I needed that too. And it was out of my unicorn space, obviously, that, well, not obviously, but I will share that, that that's where From Scratch came from. I didn't know that it was going to end in From Scratch. That was never my goal. My goal was simply to show up and to write down my feelings and to sort of craft them in a creative, to use my art and creativity in service of these words, right? I was trying to process all that I was going through. I had no creative, other creative outlet. My acting work at that point felt like a means to an end to have health insurance. And that was it. I didn't enjoy it as much at that moment because I had to take the kinds of jobs that were not the most expansive in the world, but that allowed me to be home. So they were commercials, not a series that I could go shoot in New Zealand for a month. I didn't have that option. I had to be here and present. And so my acting work served a function and it had been a unicorn space for me, you know, that was also a professional space. So showing up in a writing class consistently over months. And then I might take a month off and come back and I'd look at the catalog and see, oh, what's going to be the next quarter? That over many years, all of that writing, when I had more space after his passing, I looked back and I thought, well, I'm still wanting to enter that space because that space had become sacred for me by that point. My writing space had become sacred, but I still did not have a professional goal of being a memoirist. But I'm here to say that that might also happen <laughs> out of your unicorn space. Yes. Well, that's it. That's, that's the you beauty never of it. Know. 
the beauty, right? You never know, but that's what's so beautiful. It's, you know what, Tembi, the problem is that so many people think, well, I can't enter a unicorn space because I'm not going to become a memoirist. So let's just address that too. Because what you just showed, right, was that the end goal is not the reason why we're doing this. The end goal, and I want to say that again, the end goal is not the reason why we're doing this. It is the journey. And that may sound trite, but it is true. It is what I found. A unicorn space, the consistency of the unicorn space, you don't know where it's going to take you. But I'll tell you why completion becomes a very difficult word especially for, I think, women like Tammy and me, who probably are both similar in that we are type A and, 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 you know, used to doing things, you know, at a top level or whatever, that that sort of hurt type person out there. Often there is curiosity and often there may be connection, but the why of why should I do this unless it's going to be a best-selling memoir or a Netflix show or the top podcast in the world ends up also hurting us. So ironically, completion was a word that I thought would be easy for people to understand, Tembi, and it became the most complicated one because people understood curiosity or whether or not they were feeling curious. People understood the, the feeling of loneliness. What people had a hard time articulating was that they were not feeling the urgency to complete a unicorn space or to occupy that space because they were afraid that the outcome of being in that space was not going to be what society views as as excellent, which I thought was really interesting. I have to jump in and say about five years, maybe six, into taking these writing courses, I had a family member who shall remain unnamed for the purposes of this conversation who was like, are you still taking those classes? <laughs> and by the way, they also said, your sister's written three books in that time and you're still just taking those classes. And I have to say, mm. I had two reactions. One was the predictable one you can imagine. It was like someone was trying to shine the shame spotlight on me. This hasn't amounted to anything. It's been a waste of time. What have you done? Here's someone else who's been more productive in the same amount of time. There's a fault or something is inherently wrong with you. And I for a moment, stood under that spotlight and was like, felt all the feelings. And the other reaction was, and if I may use the F-bomb here, I was like, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. <laughs> because you don't know me and my journey and my path, and I'm exactly where I need to be. And if I need to take five more years, which by the way, I did, more or less, it was, maybe it was four, I'm finding my way. And I will also say, that person never steps into a unicorn space. <laughs> right, I was going to say. <laughs> it's typically not coming from a place, as you said earlier, one of the reasons to, to occupy unicorn space is to, you said, to become more generous. In addition to all the other beauty, the ends and the ends and the ends, like if we can't give into you with those ends, the generosity, I do notice that the beauty of some people who have re-entered their unicorn space, Tembi, in my life, like you said, those acquaintances or those family members, they have become more generous and less of what you just said, because they have, they have some more bucket to fill. They're filling their own bucket. And so there's less, you know, I think, harsh criticism and judgment. But you know that if you hear that stuff, it's typically because somebody is facing their own unicorn space challenges of either lack of curiosity connection and completion. Yeah. The way my daughter would say, stop yucking my yum. Right. So that's the same. <laughs> like, 
Give back, get thee back with your negativity. I'm walking my path, right? And I think that that is something to remember. And, and I we bring this up because it's not about the timeline and it's not about the end result. It is about the ever unfolding that lifts you and that gives you the most rich, generous, spaciousness, love and joy that you can find on any given day. And you may not find all those at once. You may not find them in any particular order. And some days they may be in high measure. Some days they may be in low measure, but you're committed to seeking and owning and stepping right. into and allowing all of those feelings to be a part of your lived experience. That's right. And that's the thing that I think your book is the call to action to do that. And when we talk about that greater generosity, that greater love, that greater care, what would the world look like if we were all able to step more fully into that space for ourselves? Wow, that's a transformational vision that I have <laughs> for so many women. Because by the way, I get to now model that for my daughter. Absolutely. I say I get to model for her and she now knows, you know, oh, when I say I'm going, which I did a few months ago, I'm going for four days to the Redwoods because I want to look at trees <laughs> and I want to like be, and she is like, I'm going to miss you. And, you know, she may not like it, but she is comfortable with knowing that I will step away and I will come back. And I'm not unavailable to her. Right. And I say, I'm going to talk to you at the end of each day. We're going to check in. So you can put these touchstones in with your children as you step away. And when I come back, what she gets to see is a mommy, right? Who is modeling for her that those interests and curiosities that she has, that she can make a commitment to find them. What's so beautiful about what you just said about modeling for the next generation, or as one woman said to me, you know what, Eve, I was really okay doing it all, but I decided I wasn't okay having my three daughters watch me do it all, which is really beautiful. So when you're talking about the next generation, I think it's a beautiful place to end this idea of what does it mean to model? What does it mean to be a role model? I want to give one piece of advice to being a role model. I don't know how else to say it. It's sort of like you're lifing. It's verbifying your life. What I noticed was that when people gave themselves the grace to be the verb, they're much more likely to model and do things and practice and fail the things we need the next generation to see us do. So this is what I mean. I'm not a writer. I'm not an artist. I'm not an archivist. I'm not an activist, right? So women, and this is where gender does come in. In my research now, and this has been over a decade, when I talk about unicorn space, I watch men say, I like to golf. I like to write. Men are much more willing to use the verb and women use the noun. I'm not a writer. So what I would say is verbify your life. It was fascinating to me. You don't have to be a writer, but you could be a person who likes to write. You don't have to be an artist, but you could be a person who likes to paint. You don't have to be a coder, but you could be a person who likes to play around with a software language on your computer and connect with others. Cause like I said, it has to be a connected pursuit and share yourself with the world. So that's what I want to leave us on. When we model and role model, try to stay away from the noun. 
and try to practice. You may like to say I'm a writer, I'm not a writer, or I'm a memoirist. Those are things we were just talking about. We are talking in nouns. But there's also some really beautiful things for the next generation to say, you know what? I'm a person who wrote a memoir. I'm a person who wrote a book. The active verb allows people to realize it's a journey and that we can try on these verbs as opposed to having to be fixed and stuck in that noun. I love, I love that. I, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would not have said, I, I knew I was a person who liked to write. Right. I didn't know I would become a person who likes to produce television. I didn't know <laughs> I, was a person, I would become a person, you know, who I, I like to write books. I love how you just even did that just there. So instead of saying, I didn't know I'd become a producer, I love how you just said, I didn't know I'd be somebody who would like to produce television. Putting it in that verb language just makes it a lot, I think, more accessible for people. Doesn't mean we can't always use the noun and be proud of the noun, but it means that women are so much more likely to use the noun when they say they're not something. Yeah. I'm not a gamer. I'm not a writer. I'm not a producer. Right. But when we say we can be somebody who wants or dreams of producing or dreams of writing or person who dreams of having a moleskin and a pen, when we start using that verb, then we're much more likely to do it. And then, as you said, the, the modeling for our community around us and those little people that are watching us. Yeah. It's an unfolding pursuit. And practice and practice. I love ending there. This has been fantastic. I thank you so much for this conversation. I know it's going to do so much in the world as you always do with all your work. And I'm so honored. Oh, I feel the same way about you, Tembi. Thank you for your work. I always say, I think we're connected in normalizing things that women are not always allowed to speak about. So again, I just couldn't be more of a fan. I hope you will remember what Eve has to say about curiosity, connection, and completion, that they are essential aspects of entering the unicorn space. It's way more than a spa day, drinks with a friend, or trying to get quote unquote happy. That instead, the unicorn space is about being consistently interested in your life and using that curiosity and that consistency as a way forward in difficult times to, dare I say, lift our lives at any stage. Lifted is developed, written, and produced by me and my one-woman producing team, Solia Cates. It is edited by Jamie Moss. Thank you for listening, and please stay tuned for our next season. We will be back bringing you in-depth conversations with women who are changing the world around us. Until then, may you be well, may you be inspired, and may each of your days be lifted.